hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Ag Show podcast. I am your host, Dr. Johan Buck, and this is the first episode of a new podcast. And joining me today is a very special friend of mine and in many circles needs no introduction, but he is the Professor Emeritus at the University of Arizona Department of Plant Sciences. And I'll share a little bit more about how I was introduced to him in a moment. But joining me today, Dr. Merle Jensen, welcome and hello. Hello, Dr. Buck. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for, for joining me on this first episode of, of this new venture of mine. Um, as I mentioned, I'll take a moment here and explain how I, how I became introduced to you. Yeah, growing up in a small town, much like yourself, I needed an after-school job, and lo and behold, an adventurous individual in our small town, and this would be the mid-90s, decided he wanted to grow tomatoes in the wintertime. And this is north-central Kansas, so it does get rather cold in the winter, and not much grows. And so I, I applied for a job at this greenhouse, and and loved it. Day one, I opened the door going from freezing cold outside and fallow wheat fields on one side of the road to opening this door. It was like stepping into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory inventing room. It was, it was warm, tall green plants, red ripe tomatoes, horizontal airflow fans, bumblebees buzzing around, and I just fell in love. And within four weeks, I was hooked and I approached the owner of that facility and asked the question, can you go to school for this? How, how does one get involved in studying this type of agriculture? And the owner, uh, God rest his soul. His name was John Van Dyke. He passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago, but John said, absolutely. And here's a list of, of universities. But he said, and he looked at and he, as he gave me this list, but he said, if you're serious, if you're really serious about this, you need to go to the University of Arizona and study with Dr. Merle Jensen and the team at the CEA Center. And you know, I was a sophomore in high school, so it was a couple of years before I really started thinking about college. But my freshman year of college, and you probably remember this email, I sent you an email saying something like, hey, I'm a kid from Kansas and I worked at this place called the Tomato Factory. How do I get to the University of Arizona? And that just, it just snowballed from there. Well, I remember that very well. This uh, young man calling from, uh, from school, lower grades. And uh, it was interesting that such would be interested in such a cold climate uh, in middle America. Yeah, and I, I remember your, your response to me was, well, here's what you need to do if you want to come to the U of A, because this is the big leagues. <laughs> Attending a small liberal arts college. Yeah, I remember that well, Johan. Yeah, yeah. So, so, Doc, tell us a little bit about about yourself. Uh, you know, take 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 me back to how in the world did you get involved in agriculture to begin with? Well, I grew up on a farm in uh, in northwest uh, western United States in a little Dutch town called Linden, Washington, which was four miles from the Canadian border from British Columbia. And uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, but I uh, 
but uh, somehow I got uh, hooked on growing plants, and and I uh, I went to uh, to to visit uh, Washington State University, and 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 went into their greenhouses, and right away I knew that's what I wanted to do, and if I wanted to do that type of thing, especially in instruction and research, I'd have to go to college. So I went to Pullman for one year, and. Um, and uh, worked hard 30 hours a week to pay for my education. And I decided that it best that I go into the U.S. Navy and get the GI Bill so that I could come back and, and have the U.S. government help me pay my tuition as I went back to college. I went to Washington State University for one more year and decided that I would transfer to a college, a university that I'd heard of in California by the name of Cal Poly. Went there and really did well. Loved working with vegetable crops, and but it wasn't in a greenhouse. And uh, and I decided that if I was going to go on to grad school, I would find a place or a professor in school that would uh, uh, give me a good foundation on growing crops in greenhouses. And that was Cornell University. And um, I interviewed there and ended up going there with my family. My wife got a job. Uh, of course, we. Uh, we uh, had no finances for that, so I had to have an assistantship. And she is, my wife was very good as a stenographer, and she ended up working for the uh, person that was in charge of the 100-year celebration of Cornell. And so we were on track, and, and I did very well. And I was under a professor that worked in greenhouses. He was the one that developed the Cornell peat light mix, peat and vermiculite, artificial soils, we would call that. And I said that I that was exactly what I wanted to do in life. And now, after I was finishing my master's, I was looking for a way to find another university to go through where I could have an assistantship. And that was Rutgers University. Rutgers was interested in developing greenhouse industry there. And at the same time, I could get the GI Bill going to school there with that assistantship. I was on my way to my PhD again. Again, Sharon um, had a job there at the, and at Cornell. She was working on the centennial, and at Rutgers, she got a job as the head of the head secretary to the organizer for the 200 celebration at Rutgers. And so we got to meet uh, Adley Stevenson and a number of important people that came to these universities. But anyway. I got my degree there at Rutgers, and then I heard about uh, a job opening here at University of Arizona, and that training would be uh, toward being a horticulturalist in a country I'd never heard of, Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. And um, that uh, that was really a, a wonderful job, located on a barren island in the Persian Gulf living with the Bedouins and building greenhouses, five acres, in, in, in an area where they didn't have snowstorm, but they had sandstorms. And uh, we were able to conquer and de- uh, conquer the elements of the desert by going in, in a greenhouse and producing yields that, well, I can tell you it was, it was uh, the story was told worldwide, worldwide, uh, and, and a number of newspapers and magazines and television shows came out of that and um, next thing you know I'm trying to make it quick here next thing you know I was working with Walt Disney on Epcot as a senior designer 
of the land pavilion, which now has had 200,000, uh, 200 million people through that. And, um, but I recently retired, not too many years ago, from the U of A, but still have great interest in controlled environment agriculture, which is a term we developed here at the University of Arizona. And many, 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 many other events and projects in that time. I mean, how many countries have you you've consulted well, and, and worked in at this point? Yes, I uh, worked in uh, about 45 countries. And... Uh, spent a lot of time in an airplane traveling to those countries. I have now, with American Airlines, 1.8 million miles with American Airlines. But in my days of doing that kind of travel have been reduced. I decided to spend more time at home. And uh, my, my favorite hobby is gardening. I love growing plants. We grow plants exceedingly well. But still, here at the University of Arizona, I developed a controlled environment agriculture center with support from uh, from the state of Arizona. After visiting with the governor, I told her what we needed and she helped finance that. And today we have this center of three full-time PhD set, uh, uh, professors and roughly 100 students that come through our program. And Johan was one. And he had a professor that, I, uh, that we had brought from Japan who spoke fluent English. And Johan ended up working with Dr. Sherry Kaboto. And... Um, well, the, the rest is history. Um, we're well known at the University of Arizona. Anyone can Google the Controlled Environment Agriculture Center, University of Arizona, and get the full information on how that all started. I want to come back to uh, to Cornell. You know, when you studied with Dr. Sheldrake, um, the Cornell peat light mixes, they were quite revolutionary at the time, right? I mean, soilless media at that time what was very little development, right? This was something fairly new. That's correct. And what was what was occurring up until then is that the, the, uh, the industry, the greenhouse vegetable industry was mainly in Ohio, in the Cleveland area, and they would have to steam sterilize that soil every year to get rid of the pathogens. But unfortunately, the steam only went down the control and and, and and, and the uh, control of any diseases, root diseases, by steaming only went down 12 inches, and the tomato roots would go down four feet, up to four feet. So that's what it really said, uh, and Dr. Sheldrake, through his guidance, said we got to go under a not only controlled environment for the upper atmosphere, but controlled envi root environment. So it we took the Cornell peat mix, which was designed for growing bedding plants, and we had adapted that to growing vegetables. The next thing you know, um, uh, because of that work, I was, of course, went to Rutgers University, and, uh, and that was the beginning of using soilless media, along with work that was done in England and in Scandinavian countries. They also had their ways of growing. But I would say the use of the Cornell peat mix has gone worldwide, and today that's commonplace in the in the industry. And other other soil media has come along, whether it be vermiculite and peat moss, um, or perlite, or just growing in flood and drain where you have a uh, a, a small rock, rock stone environment for the plants to grow. And there are many ways uh, that we could anchor that plant. 
and it all comes down to economics and what you use. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, when you so from Cornell went to Rutgers, and that was around the time. Was that were you there during the time or before or after when uh, Professor Roberts was working on the double poly for for greenhouses? Yeah, when I when I um, came there, he was developing that, and he had that in a in a small research greenhouse, very small, and. Uh, he uh, said, you know, I'd like it. And I had a big greenhouse, about 2,000 square feet. And he said, I'd like to try this idea in your big greenhouse. And I said, you know, my thesis is revolves around that, and I can't have any failures. Why? Well, he said, it's going to work. So I trusted him. And what we did was put two layers of poly on the greenhouse. Uh, now, we used to put one layer on, then we had a two, two by uh, one inch strip that we'd put over the, uh, the over the uh, structure that held the poly of the greenhouse up, and we would put that poly on, put two inches and then two inch uh, a bar over the top of that, and then another layer of poly. So we had two layers, uh, and two layers would give us forty percent heat saving um, over just one layer of poly. So he said, "I want to do it where we not put a a, a a, um, a structure between the two layers, which was wood. Uh, he said, I want to put air between. And he said, uh, I said, uh, well, let's try it. I, uh, I said, it sounded like an idea that would work. And guess what? It worked. It worked great. And you see that idea throughout, throughout the world today, but it all starts between a combination of Cornell and Rutgers. It was a time of revolution in controlled environment. And fortunately, I, w- I had a chance to be a part of that. Yeah, that's so neat. And I, I, you know, it was interesting that to come to to find out that information because the greenhouse that I started in, you know, this this was back when greenhouse technology, the sidewalls were still fairly short, and we had double poly roofs, and uh, I sure got a good lesson in how to install those roofs, which is not easy at the time. So then, from from Rutgers. You you find this opportunity out in Arizona. What was the what was the ag department like at the U of A when you arrived? Well, I went there, and uh, you know there were a group of young people. In fact, they were in, in astrophysics, and uh, they understood engineering, but didn't have a clue on growing. And they approached the Rockefeller Foundation on a grant, and Rockefeller said, "You're going to have to find someone that knows how to grow plants." So I came down to interview, and I remember my professor from Cornell came with me. He said, I've heard about these people, but I don't know if you really want to work there. And I went there, and I said, wow, I think I can do something. And not only that, they had a, a, a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to do a facility in Puerto Penasco, Mexico. And I said, wow, what a, what a great opportunity to do international work. And so we did that, and guess what? It worked well. And uh, we had visitors from throughout the world. If it wasn't from Israel or Saudi Arabia or countries in Holland, countries in Europe like Holland and England, uh, we uh, were doing revolutionary ideas. And it wasn't with only me, but we had great engineers and other agriculturalists that worked on this. And as a team, we did that. Now, I worked on soft money for 19 years. 
And I knew we had to succeed. Otherwise, I was going to have to uh, find another job. But we succeeded. Next thing you know, the university said, you know, we would like to bring you on campus from where you were working in the environmental research lab, way off campus. And I did that, and I came as an assistant dean. But meantime, spent a lot of time lecturing. And um, especially when Walt Disney contacted us and said, you know, we want to do your kind of thing in the land pavilion at Epcot Center, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And a lot of people doubted me, doubted whether we could do that. And I said, don't worry. We know a lot about growing crops hydroponically, and we'll make this system dance, and it will bring people from throughout the world. And that's, that's happened. Uh, over to it, like I said, 200 million people have visited the land pavilion, uh, designed again by the University of Arizona's Environmental Research Lab. It, how how did the how did the controlled environment ag center come come to be? You know that's near and dear to my heart, your heart, and many many others, staff, faculty, fellow graduate students, past and present. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, um, it's uh, the the whole system of doing thing at any verse is very regimented, but I would never follow that. If I had an idea, I'd just do it, and so. Um, I heard that the governor was interested maybe in our systems by a visitor from her chief of staff. And I went to visit the governor and I, and I said I needed so many million, so many hundreds of thousands per year to do that. And she helped fund a facility that we built uh, called the Controlled Environment Ag Center. And uh, it was very, very successful. Uh, not only in what we developed in the state of Arizona and in the United States, but we uh, brought a whole team of other scientists. And like I said, we have over 100 students per year coming through that. Yeah, a lot of students. But a great program. I, I look back fondly on that and and appreciate not only yourself, but Dr. Kubota, Gene Giacomelli, you know, you guys, you were all on my, on my committee. And uh, which, as you know, it wasn't easy for me at first. I remember, you know, coming there and all gung ho, excited, ready to go. And within a few months, quickly found myself in a situation where I thought I might be in over my head. But fortunately, I was, you know, I had a good relationship with with you and and Dr. Kubota and, and Gene, and we had kind of this coming to Jesus meeting, and I expressed my my frustrations because I because I remember early on. There was one student from Cornell, right? I came from this small university in Kansas. Nobody you know, hears of uh, Fort Hayes State University. Go Tigers. And uh, I remember Dr. Kubota had a couple of graduate students that enrolled the same semester I did from big caliber universities. And within a few weeks, they were gone. I thought, where'd they go? Oh, they couldn't handle it. <laughs> what do you mean they couldn't handle it? What, what's going on? And and I quickly under, and realized that myself. I remember Dr. Kubota said something like, I need you to go in and, and set up your environmental uh, sensors and start running statistics. And I had a high-low thermometer in the greenhouse. So I set that up and I said, all right, I'm tracking, tracking the temperature. And she said, no, no. <laughs> so fortunately, you know, her, her uh, husband and assistant, Mark Krogel, what a great guy, Help me set up those those systems, but it's an amazing facility. It continues to to generate revolutionary research. We worked on a great project uh, 
Uh, I look back fondly on picking those tomatoes early in the morning and, and you showing up early and walking in and saying, I knew you'd be here. And then go down and grab some breakfast burritos from McDonald's. Well, those are those are all you know. Every every lot of graduate students who succeed, you know, have to do long hours and have some innovation, some ways to add things to the uh, to make this a scientific kind of thing, so they can get a thesis out of that. And uh, you did well at that. And uh, uh, you know, it, it a lot of a lot of young people don't want to go on for a master's or a doctorate degree, but if you want to work at a level level of development and uh, and and uh, have ideas that you want to be able to work on and research through research grants through a university or a company that can be done but it's a lot of midnight oil a lot of long work but it's worth it and i just can't tell you how uh, i was so lucky to have professors that were that were indeed um, expected a lot from me but I remember when I was at Cornell, my professor said to me, he said, you know, I've got uh, five uh, people from Holland to come and see our work. And I said to him, you know, well, he said, what's the deal? And I said, well, I don't have any good pair of shoes to wear. They've got holes in the soles. He said, I'll tell you what, I got a pair that will fit. You come on over and I'll give you my shoes to wear. And that's what we did. <laughs> and... Um, and luckily, uh, my wife Sharon uh, had a good job, but uh, enough to put beans on the table, you might say. Mm -hmm. And um, it uh, all was worth it. But uh, it was long hours. And I remember when I came to Cornell, pulling a U-Haul trailer in a little Chevy too. And uh, my professor, I called him. I said, "I'm here, and I have my daughter with me, and she's quite sick. I need a doctor." He said, wait, wait, I'll be out to see you. I'll come out to Varna and see you. And uh, he told me where the doctor was. And he said, I'll see you next morning at the greenhouse. And um, <laughs> and uh, so we got the daughter, uh, daughter, a good doctor. But uh, next morning I had my footing on my first systems of control and environment ag. <laughs> How about that? that? That is important. And, you know, looking back on graduate school, uh, that that may, that means a lot to have, you know, your major advisor and your mentors, those on your graduate committee, especially major advisor and those that um, help support in that way. I mean, because it's not easy. It's long hours. You're doing a, you're not only doing research, but you're doing your schoolwork and graduate re, graduate studies is different than undergrad. Um, and unless you go through it and do it, I don't think people quite understand that process. It, it is it is challenging. And, uh, yeah, and I, I look back on it fondly. There were moments during that time where mm -hmm, I was probably, yeah, whispering under my breath, you know, frustrations, but I mean, that's just, that's just the way it goes. You're working towards something bigger and trying to achieve, you know, you're put a dent in, in the knowledge base and work on great projects. So that's, that's important. Um, I mean, yeah, done a lot I, of, I would ahead. say, Johanna, one of the important things for young people is that you, you not only work hard and work on new ideas, but you got to you got to get those ideas out to the public and uh, have them used. In my case, they were used worldwide, and uh, 
and there was a great deal of satisfaction that my my work has gone into five languages, uh, and um, to this day, I'm you know we're cited. I, I I always go back. You can find ways of people who have cited you, and it's a it's a lot of a lot of people that have used that basic science in their own work, and uh, it's how we're going to feed our population are these new concepts and developments. Yeah, and that's one thing you did really well for the university. I mean, you taught one class. And when I mean say one class, it was one class, one semester, correct? And then it really became this uh, this effort to build essentially brand awareness of the University of Arizona and controlled environment agriculture. I mean, you were always bringing people through and really not only just demonstrating what we do. I mean, it was really, people were entertained. And that I think was a difference maker compared to maybe other universities. I don't know how they do things, but I just know from my experience during my time at the University of Arizona when you were highly active and that that, that marketing is really important. That's what led so many companies to come there. We had phenomenal and still have, not had, have, phenomenal faculty at that facility at the University of Arizona. And there are other facilities that are up and coming, which is great to see CEA kind of have this, this growth over the last 22 years uh, with you know, Ohio State University, where Dr. Kubota is now at, uh, Cornell, you know, like Neil Matson doing a great job at Cornell University. But uh, that was one of the things that was really fun to watch was here we are doing research, academic research, applied and basic research, and you'd bring people in and people would just leave giddy, excited. And holy cow, that was an experience. And I think it's important that people learn from that because if they want their facilities to succeed, I think you need to have that as well. It's serious business, but if people enjoy it and they have a good time and they like, wow, this is important and it's fun too. Yeah, we... Uh one of the things we did is that we uh, did a lot of did a lot of work in Mexico, and uh, uh, as a result of our work, we we put it into Spanish. And I would I I used to go down to Mexico every year for Meister publications, and I would lecture too between seven hundred to a thousand people. And today the industry is huge in Mexico, uh, and. We, because of that, going down there and doing that work, we feed a lot of people, a lot of people. So that work in Mexico, it's in, and I, I would say that a lot of that work in Mexico is feeding vitamins and minerals through vegetable crops coming up across the border, especially during our winter months when it's warmer down there. The hot cost of heating is not as great down there as it is in the United States. And so it, it's it, it's it. It's something that is very important in one's diet that vitamins and minerals are, are provided. People don't realize just peppers alone are tremendously in, 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 important from the standpoint of getting the required vitamins. And so we do all of that in a controlled environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 100%. So I want to, I want to ask you, of, of all the projects that you've done, I mean, you've done. I've heard so many stories. We don't. We just don't have enough time to to go over some of those stories. But I mean, you've you've worked on some really interesting 
projects. Are there are there any that that stand out to you uh, that are are most memorable? Well, I think there were three. Abu Dhabi, of course, was extremely uh, exciting. Uh, the one we did for the Shah of Iran in Karg Island was another exciting one. And then I think the other one uh, was the work with Disney because uh, of the thousands of people that would go through the land pavilion and see that. And we had great educational programs. We had a number. We, we They offered scholarships to students throughout the United States. We would have anywhere from five, five to ten students there for six months to a year at Disney where they learned the science, but at the same time, be working with this, they, they learn how to tell the story by the crack where they would come through the backstage background in the greenhouses. We'd take tours through. And we, through that, through, through that, because of that contact we had with the general public, I think has made a major contribution in growing crops, uh, feeding this country, the United States, through that work that we did uh, starting over 50 years ago. And as far as far as we've come, you know, a lot of emphasis now is seems to be, you know, vertical farming, indoor production, you know, greenhouses in the U.S. continue to expand, you know, like there's a there's a tremendous amount of growth in Ohio, a lot of vertical farming. I mean, you've seen this from its infancy in the U.S. until today. Um and vertical farming is not without its challenges. Just a couple of weeks ago, a couple of companies announced that they're closing their doors. What What are your thoughts on 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 vertical farming, and and what are, and also beyond that, what do you see as the future of of CEA based on where we're at today? Well, there's a lot of enthusiasm for vertical farming, but you have to remember that you're in an enclosed structure, and the electrical cost can be very high because in a structure that's vertically that may go up 20 to 30 feet is that you got to bring that heat from the top back down to the bottom. And then you got to have artificial lighting to go with that. Uh, not only that, you got to have heating or you got to have refrigeration depending what time of the year you're doing that. So the energy cost can be very high. And I think that unless you're in an area where you can receive a return from your product high enough and we see vertical farming but in areas where people can afford to pay that kind of money for the product and then that's fine but my interest in is is uh, go to the grass roots of the world and i don't care if it's in china you know again i have books uh, uh books that have been my books have been translated into five languages and uh that's that's what's important to me is that how we feed people vitamins and minerals. You, you know, you can have rice and you can have potatoes. And they're the major carbohydrate crops that give you energy. But you got to have the vitamins and minerals that go with it. Vegetables are required. We need that. And to have fresh vegetables that are affordable to the poor is very important. And that's what we're doing. And to this day, I still work with organizations, whether it's in in Palestine or Israel or the Middle East, it's not uncommon for me to be answering questions and working with groups uh, on this technology that to us, it's old, but new for many people. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, especially on providing 
for people in that, that was one of the draws to me to of the controlled environment agriculture was you, here you have this technology where if you're in an area geographically that has let's say you know it's limited in its resources maybe it doesn't have uh arable land or water or any number of factors controlled environment agriculture offers the advantage to where you can grow crops and and and, and some oftentimes unique crops and very very nutritiously important crops in areas that you might not otherwise because of those geographical constraints that's what drew me to agriculture or CEA was I thought, wow, because this could really change the world. This could, this has the potential to, to help people who might not otherwise have access to nutritious food. And I, I want to ask you a question. I struggle, I don't struggle with this, but I come across it quite a bit because I do work in both field ag and controlled environment agriculture. And I know you've spent a lot of time in field ag as well. I know you growing up, some of your closest friends own some of the largest field operations in the U.S. What would you say, as we're both advocates of controlled environment agriculture, what would you say to those that are in CEA that maybe kind of have tunnel vision and maybe really advocate strongly for CEA to the point where they might... um, say you know, their their opinions of field ag are are not not very good um but i often wonder if do they fully understand the advances and importance of field agriculture you know what you know what i mean they kind of have this one-sided view that cea is the solution to all of our agricultural problems well i'm going to tell you this right now is that uh, what we have uh, what we have uh what we have existed in regard to field agriculture is going to come slowly to a halt. And there's an issue called water. We are running short on water. And Lake Mead and some of the, the lakes in the West are far uh, gone down in their volume. So we're not going to be using water and a lot of it wasted as we apply it in, 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 in the field through furrow or flood irrigation. We're going to have to go under a controlled environment where we can put the water through and put fertilizer in the water going through drip irrigation onto the crops to get 150 tons per acre rather than 10. And the thing is that we're going to see such agriculture. Not only that, but we have, and we haven't talked about this, we have included aquaponics where we're growing fish and the fish is tilapia and Fish a tilapia is, is one that Israel for years has used from the Sea of Galilee. We have now taken that fish, tilapia, incorporated that as a part of our growing system where we can take that wastewater that has the excrement from the fish, fish fertilizer, and that going onto the plant. So it's a kind of a, uh, a, a combination, companion crop we're having, animals and plants. And there's increasing interest on that in ways that we could do this economically. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think that as we uh, have increased populations in the world with water shortages, we're going to have to go into more controlled environment. And it's happening. There's no doubt about it. It's happening. And so 
what you have to do. You're going to have to, you're going to have to, and I don't like to say we train people. Uh, I always tell people that in the circus, they train monkeys, but in agriculture, we trade, we educate people, not train. We educate people to use our hands and their brain in order for the feeding the future uh, in, in our world. Yeah, I agree with you on, on, on many accounts there. I think what we'll, what I, my, this is my opinion. What I see is, is increased technology in field ag drip irrigation technologies you know, as simple as cover crops for soil erosion, uh, improving soil, um, and, and really kind of figuring out which crops are best for field ag versus controlled environment where we can fit controlled. It, the answer is all of the above. That's what, that's what, that was my point is kind of hit these two camps. Well, field ag, controlled environment ag. No, the, all, with all these people and all these, it, it's all of the above. That's for our agriculture. We'll see, can increasingly see more and more CEA, but as far as agriculture as a whole, what's going to, what's the solution to feeding our growing populations? It's, it's going to be a combination of everything because we're not making any more land. It's being developed. You know, you, you know, as well as I do living here in Arizona, we see increasingly arable land be developed. That's less land for crops, which means we're going to have to get that food from somewhere. Water's going down. The quality of water is not that great. Um, I talked to an extension agent at the U of A earlier this week, and he said, you know, we use, I think, 74% of the water from the Colorado River that we use is for agriculture. And he said the majority of that water alone is used to flood the fields to push that salt deeper down in the soil profile. So even the water that's being used on the fields isn't for agricultural production. So that's a problem. If we can do that, then we, we work on, on reducing the water usage for agricultural production. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the excuses the people that flood irrigate is to drive the salt down. And the thing is that the reason why they have so much salt because they use so much water. And the thing is that what you can do with drip irrigation is that, yes, you will have a salt. Uh, you know, the, the farther that moisture goes away from the drip system, it becomes salty. But we know that when it rains, you got to add the water to that because that salt will then come into the plant roots and will damage it. So you know when it's going to rain, you add water and go to field capacity so that water, that's, that area that's high in salts, won't come into the root system. So it's a management thing. And uh, I know that, uh, that a lot of people still use technology developed during biblical times. That's not going to make it today. We've got to use today's science to feed everyone. And it's limiting water. And it's, again, it's engineering and horticulture put together. And it's, and, and it's reasons to understand it and why you do that. And at the same time, have a sharp pencil so that you can get the economics worked out. But it, it, they're, they're, it's, it's happening more and more and more and more is that um, we're going to these systems. But again, you, know, you got the traditionalist. Yeah, and a lot of the older professors are somewhat resistant to adapt to new, but we're getting there because there's no other solution. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I brought something out for a little bit of nostalgia here before we uh, we come to a close because I, I may have one or two more questions, but I want to show you something. Speaking of retirement, because um, now you are more officially retired than you were in 2003 when... Can you see that? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's your retirement celebration brochure from from September of twenty or two thousand and three. So I, I I didn't even know I had these. I was going through some books the other day and this slipped out, and I thought, how funny. So I remember you said we were going to retire, and that was o three, and you're still growing strong. Are you are you still are you working on any projects actively now, or are you just kind of taking things as they come and and just enjoying your family? Now, you know, I'm not working on any active projects now. It's time that I uh, take some time out and do do work on the work that I love to do. Uh, and uh, you know, I still I still have a I still lecture at the university, and uh, it, because of my lectures and because of the questions that come on, I can see the all stars there. So about one out of ten or two out of ten, they're all stars. And I come to visit, and I see them working in the greenhouse, and I'll spend time with them. And uh, that's what I really enjoy. And uh, at the same time, you know, my I've got a granddaughter and, and other things, but I still love to grow. I still love to do what we're doing right now, just to tell the story and uh, to reach as many people as possible because I know what we have to do, and we got to just get the gospel out there. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I want to thank you for joining me today to help spread that. You know, that we'll, we'll see how far this this podcast goes. I know a lot of people are excited for me to to uh, start this new podcast, and I'm very very fortunate to to have you on as a guest. I'm even more blessed to have you as a friend. You know, go from mentor to to a friend, and and it's nice to be able to say that, even with you know Dr. Kubota, uh, with her and cultivate in last July. And it's, it's exciting to see how her career has progressed. Cause I, I would think I was one of her early graduate students here when she, she moved to the United States and was teaching at the U of A and just to see accomplishments of, of that and to see Dr. Giacomelli now out, you know, consulting and doing his thing and her fellow graduate students and what they're doing. It's, it's really cool to see. And everybody in their own way is getting the, the story out there and, and doing a lot of great work. Yeah, it was Dr. Kubota that I used to lecture to when I when she was just a graduate student on their Dr. Talk or Professor Takakura, and she was introduced to the University of Arizona through my lectures in Japan, and so we do attract some all stars, and she was one of them, and uh, and that's you know it's good good to know that she her basic work in science and, and her husband Mark. Here at the University of Arizona, now has been spread through Ohio State University, and it's her work that brought Ohio to the surface again as one of the more knowledgeable institutions on controlled environment. So, uh, it's it's been a great career, Johan, and I really enjoyed working with you. and And uh, and uh, it, there's a lot of opportunity for young people, and um, you just have to work, and you'll get there. Absolutely. Dr. Jensen, thank you very much. And if you'll hold tight, I'll uh, I'll end the podcast and just just hang tight with me as it wraps up. But I also want to thank the listeners for joining us on this episode of the Ag Show podcast. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Jensen and look forward to producing additional episodes. We have exciting guests coming up and we're going to cover a broad, we're going to cover everything agriculture. So this was just the beginning. And this one really meant a lot to me because this is where I got my start in agriculture. And Dr. Jensen was instrumental in, in my success in getting to the University of Arizona 
and and throughout my my professional career. So again, thank you very much, thing, Dr. Jensen, and hold tight. One thing in closing. Yes, please. A lot of my papers by Googling me, uh, Merle Jensen, University of Arizona, and a lot of my papers are there. They can get those papers by Googling me and uh, it will be very helpful for yes. I'm sorry. I should have I should have asked that. Where can people find information about you? I your book as well. I think I've got a copy here somewhere. Yeah. No, I don't. What is the name of the book where that's uh, translated into five languages well, so people can look for that as well? Let me. I'll get it here. It's called. This is right here. Can you see it? I cannot see it. It's a little. It's a little blurry. It's called the Sariat Miracle called Zion. Unfortunately, the book is not on Amazon. I'm hoping that they will do that, but it tells the stories of the early controlled environment in in the Middle East. And um, but and also again, a lot of those early papers we did on controlled environment, they can get that by just googling my name, and they'll get those, and they can print those off. And I'll, I'll put some. I'll put some of that information in the show notes. I can get links to some of those. I can also get the the title to you from you and and list it there. So if and when it's ready for for mass production, people can can purchase that. And yeah, because I don't. I don't. You're probably not uh, very active on LinkedIn or do any of the social media. So if people want to learn more, they can just search your papers. Right. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Good. Anything else before we before we wrap up? It's been good. Thank you. It's good to get. And thank you. Okay, hang hang tight. Good luck. Yep.